Good morning. I'm Danny Martin. I'm one of the leaders here at City on Hill, and it's great to see all of you here with us in person, and great to be seen by all of you joining us online, whether you're live or watching later on YouTube or Spotify. Come join us if you're looking for a church home. We've got plenty of ways for you to connect here. We've got plenty of seats for you. We hope to see you soon in person. One of the most famous opening lines in film history is a line that is never actually spoken in the film that uses it. The film begins in silence with a screen that's all black except for the famous opening line. This line tells the audience exactly what sort of movie they're about to watch in 10 simple words. Surely the nerds among you have already guessed a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. The very first line from Star Wars, released in 1977. It's a line that says to the audience, without directly saying it, what you're about to watch is so long ago that no one could ever remember it. It's so far away that no one will ever find it. So don't wait and don't look. Don't try to connect this story to a real time and place. Suspend your disbelief, grab a popcorn, grab a Coke, and enjoy. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, is a lot like another famous opening line, once upon a time. If a story begins with once upon a time, we know immediately that we're about to hear a thank you class, fairy tale. This opening line tells us that we shouldn't think too hard about the details because fairy tales are made up. The point of a fairy tale is not to try to track down the real people and places they describe, because fairy tales aren't describing real people and places. And if they are, I have questions. Why were the three bears eating porridge when they clearly had access to organic fresh-caught salmon? Was Humpty Dumpty an egg man or a man egg? And why did the king spend all those federal tax dollars putting him back together? How deep did the Humpty Dumpty conspiracy go? Little Red Riding Hood, what is wrong with you? Do you need glasses? Do you really think that your grandmother looks like a wolf dressed in drag? We are, of course, not supposed to ask these sorts of questions about fairy tales, particularly the last one. The point of a fairy tale is to use made-up stories to teach true lessons. And the opening line, once upon a time, is a context clue that tells us how we're supposed to understand what comes after in the story. Opening lines establish the expectations that we have toward the story that we are about to hear, read, or see. There is also an opening line in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Let's look there together. Turn there with me in your Bible. If you don't have a physical Bible, BibleGateway.com is a great app to use on your phone. While you're getting there to Matthew, 1, chapter, or Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, I hope you know 
that though the Bible may at times be mysterious, it doesn't have to be a mystery in your life. If you will read it personally and in Christian community, if you will ask God to open your eyes to its message and to its meaning for your life, He will. God desires to have a relationship with every single one of us, and He asks us to position ourselves to receive from Him. Bible reading is a foundational way of doing this. Matthew 1.18. It's an opening line. It tells us what kind of story we're about to read. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. Let's pray. Father, you are good, and we praise you. We thank you for the grace of another day. Open our ears to hear what you're speaking to each of our hearts, and may we be more than hearers, but listeners and doers. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So imagine if Jesus' story began a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. There was a man named Jesus. Or what if it started, once upon a time, there was a very special baby? We would take that to mean, don't bother asking where Jesus was born or when he lived, because that doesn't really matter in this story. We might be tempted to think that like in a fantasy movie or a fairy tale, the story of Jesus is ultimately a made-up story. We would think it's literally untrue, but it teaches true morals or true lessons. But the story of Jesus does not begin with once upon a time. It begins, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. The story of Jesus does not tell us that the things it records are so long ago we shouldn't bother wondering when, or so far away that we shouldn't bother looking where. In fact, it does just the opposite when it echoes another famous opening line we've seen many times before. The gospel accounts are based on a true story. The life of Jesus is not a fairy tale. It is not an awesome film franchise that has been ruined by Disney. The life and ministry of Jesus Christ is not a made-up story that all the grown-ups told you until you got old enough to know better. Jesus is a real person of history. You can believe there was a historical Jesus as confidently as you can believe that there was a historical Julius Caesar or Cleopatra or George Washington. Unfortunately, we tend to hear just the opposite, especially around Christmas and Easter. Some folks like to get into the holiday spirit by making tweets and memes and little video clips saying, oh, Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't really exist. And if you believe that Jesus really existed, why not just go all the way? Just start believing in leprechauns and unicorns too. They say that the stories of Jesus' life are mythical, not different from stories about Hercules or King Arthur. And, and by the way, didn't you Christians know that Jesus was invented in the 4th century by the Roman Emperor Constantine? Didn't you guys know that? Don't you know history? Jesus was made up after the fact. We're told to enjoy the pretty Christmas lights and to indulge mom by going to church with her once a year around Christmas. So go ahead and make mom happy. That's okay but don't take this Jesus thing so seriously. 
It's all made up after all. This is Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman has had a long career as a New Testament text critic, distinguished professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, author of over 30 books, and skeptic. Bart Ehrman is a skeptic of Christianity, and he is also not an ivory tower academic who only writes for other scholars. He's a public intellectual. He's appeared on everything from the BBC to The Daily Show. Six of his published books are New York Times bestsellers. So if there's any living scholar who could get away with writing a popular level book arguing that Jesus is a made-up fairy tale, prime suspect. So you may be surprised to learn that in 2012, Bart Ehrman published his book, Did Jesus Exist? The Historical Argument for Jesus of Nazareth. And in the opening of this book, he wrote this, I am not a Christian, and I have no interest in promoting a Christian cause or a Christian agenda. I'm an agnostic with atheist leanings. But I think evidence matters, and the past matters. And for anyone to whom both evidence and the past matter, a dispassionate consideration of the case makes it quite plain Jesus did exist. He adds later in the book, the idea that Jesus did not exist is a modern notion. It has no ancient precedence. It was made up in the 18th century. One might as well call it a modern myth, the myth of the mythical Jesus. Even this guy says Jesus existed. Don't let random Facebook memes and TikTok dum-dums tell you he doesn't. We have to stop listening to people who are good at getting our attention but have done nothing to deserve it. The truth is that the people who are best positioned to argue that Jesus did not exist don't because they cannot. Jesus is not like Luke Skywalker or Hercules or Paul Bunyan. He's not a made-up character that's placed into a real historical setting like Forrest Gump or the Downton Abbey people. Jesus Christ was really born, really lived, really died. You can believe that he existed and that he started a movement that changed the world. We call it church. You should believe this. I'd even venture to say you would be foolish not to. But Jesus does a lot more than simply exist. The Bible goes on in Matthew 1.18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, that is the law of Moses, the Torah, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph did not believe that Jesus was God's son. Joseph's first thought was that Mary was sleeping around because he knew, like all of us know, that in the overwhelming majority of cases, the Holy Spirit does not go around making babies pop out of nowhere. 
He wasn't going to start his married life with someone he deduced was cheating on him. Not to mention that they were only engaged at this point, so if she started showing, some people would have thought that Joseph was being unscrupulous. So he could have told everyone what he figured she did to protect his own reputation. Instead, he wanted to shield Mary from everything that she would have suffered as an adulteress living in that place and time, public disgrace, impossible social hurdles, and a life of poverty. So he wanted to divorce her quietly. But then we read this in Matthew 1.20. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son, meaning descendant of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Jesus isn't just a real historical figure who the majority of credible scholars believe existed. There is more. He is conceived from God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Believing Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit takes more faith than believing he existed. Plenty of secular experts believe that Jesus existed. And I can't tell you the mechanism by which God the Holy Spirit impregnated the Virgin Mary with God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And I promise you, no amount of graduate school will answer that question either. Save your money. Being comfortable with some degree of mystery in matters like this is hard for some of us because we assume we're smart. And if you just explain it correctly, we would get it. But that's not actually true. What I mean is, you could explain algebra to your dogs. Let's call them Bella and Lucy. <laughs> but private tutoring will never help Bella and Lucy understand algebra because their doggy brains are not capable of understanding algebra. Algebra is beyond their categories. Their categories are breakfast, what about second breakfast, brunch, lunch, supper, dinner, snack, belly rubs. But just because dogs can't understand algebra doesn't mean there is no algebra. And we don't like the idea that when it comes to God, there are some ways in which all of us have doggy brain. Algebra is beyond Bella and Lucy. God is beyond us. It's in fact worse than this for us because God is infinite, which means that it is more likely your dog will learn algebra than you and I will learn God. We are incapable of grasping anything about God that he doesn't put into understandable terms for us. One of my college professors put it this way, there are things about God I cannot answer, but there are things about God I cannot question. There are more things about God that we can't answer than there are. These things can be fun to talk about, but it's the things about God that we can't question that we can build our lives upon. Some of you have, or at some point will, God willing, once this awful war is over, visit Israel. And if you go to Israel, you can sit where Jesus sat. You can walk where Jesus walked. You can eat some falafel. 
And I hope that you get to go to the Sea of Galilee and stand there and look out over the water and know that it is a real place. And that when the Bible intends to tell us that something is actually true, we can trust it. But even standing there looking at the Sea of Galilee, it will take faith to believe that 2,000 years ago, Jesus ordered storming water to be still and it obeyed. We can corroborate much of what the Bible says with real people, times, places, and events, but Israel trips and lots of school will never exempt us from the need to believe God, as Hebrews 11 tells us, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Maybe some of you have been following Jesus for a long time, and what I'm saying is old hat. But it's not old hat to everybody. A couple of years ago, I did a Bible Q&A with some middle school students. The students were able to ask whatever questions they wanted. This was potentially dangerous, but we made it. And I have to tell you, the middle schoolers' questions, better than adult questions. Middle schoolers, they want to know, how can they believe God exists? Where does the Bible come from? Life-altering questions. Adults want to know if they should tithe, gross or net. These things aren't old hat to those who maybe concluded a long time ago that the Jesus story is a pleasant fairy tale. They need to know it's much, much more than that. Maybe God wants to use you to bless others with Jesus' true story. Maybe God wants you to pray that he will grant opportunities that you can listen to those who are far from him, share food or coffee with them, serve their needs, and gain the personal credibility to speak truth and love and to share what God has done in your life. Maybe the reason God teaches us things isn't so that we will just keep it to ourselves. The gospel writers tell us Jesus was born from a human mother, yet conceived by God's Holy Spirit. It takes some faith to believe this, but it's not a blind faith, it's a reasonable faith. So we read on in Matthew 1:21. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people. 15% on car insurance by switching to Geico. Wait a second. That's not what it says. You know what the problem is? I'm translating directly from the Greek and I'm a little rusty. Okay. We'll try that again. Give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from distant relatives they don't want to see at the holidays. No, your Bible doesn't say that either. Call him Jesus because he will save his people from all the negative consequences of their actions. Because he'll save his people from the negative consequences of other people's actions. From cancer. From a financial crisis that they didn't cause. From a hard upbringing that they didn't deserve. From losing their homes to a natural disaster or a foreign military aggressor from a tragic random act of violence. 
So much of the confusion about Jesus' identity concerns what he came to save us from. Throughout Jesus' ministry, people assumed he was there to save them from the Roman Empire, the foreign occupying power in Israel. Jesus' opponents thought that he was a pretender grasping for fame and a following, and they feared that he would start a revolution, agitate Rome, and bring down catastrophe on the nation of Israel. And Jesus' followers thought that he was God's chosen Messiah, and they assumed that this meant he was the tip of the spear against Rome, that he would overthrow the Romans, reinstate Israel as an independent kingdom, and ascend the throne himself as its human king. Things haven't changed all that much today. Jesus never promised to rescue us from every inconvenience, difficulty, or hardship that this world brings. But it hasn't stopped many, many people from saying that following Jesus is basically just about the spirit of his teachings, which usually just means those teachings that someone prefers. It hasn't stopped others from saying that following Jesus will lead to us enjoying wealth, health, and happiness. We just have to believe hard enough, and we can show that we believe hard enough by sending a check or money order to the right person. All of these ideas are false. The angel from God told Joseph this, you will give him the name Jesus. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. It means rescuer, deliverer, savior. Mary will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save us from the thing which has broken our relationship with God, our sin. Sin isn't just a word religious people use to categorize stuff they don't like. It's much worse than that. Sin is any thought, action, or inaction that violates God's holiness. It separates us from God. It means we can't be near him. In the beginning, God created human beings to be in relationship with himself and one another. And he put them in a garden. And they were all together with no separation. And when the first human beings sinned by disobeying God, they became separated from him. And he made this separation tangible by banishing them from the garden that was supposed to be their home. And then he put cherubim, cherubim, which are not these pudgy little babies like in Renaissance art. They're big, terrifying angels with swords. And he put them there to guard the way so that they could never go back. Everybody who's come after these first people, Adam and Eve, is now dealing with the consequences of their disobedience. We are all, to varying degrees, victims, and we are all perpetrators. Some theologians would say that we are all sinners by nature and by choice. We're outside of the garden, and that means that we suffer things we weren't meant to suffer, and we perpetrate things that we were not meant to perpetrate. So now, we can't be near God because he is, as the Bible tells us, a purifying, consuming fire. He dwells in unapproachable light. We can't approach him or we would be consumed. Yet, God created us to be in relationship with himself. 
this is a problem. And it's the problem that Jesus came to save us from. It's the reason for Advent. It's the reason for Christmas. The reason Jesus can rescue us from this problem is because of what we're reading right here in Matthew chapter 1. Joseph is not Jesus' father. God is Jesus' father. This means that Jesus was not born a sinner by nature, and he never became one by choice. Jesus is truly human and truly God. Jesus was without sin, and this is because he is truly God, and because Jesus is truly God, he is not separated from God. Because he's truly human, he's able to bridge the separation for us. But the people in Jesus' day were concerned with getting their human kingdom back. They thought that's what the Messiah's purpose was, and once they got their human kingdom back, everything would be all right. But that wasn't the real problem they and we are facing. We were not made for human kingdoms. We were made for a garden. And since we can't go back to that garden, Jesus brought that garden to us. Jesus is truly God and truly human. He is the son of David as well as the son of God. He says that we will have trouble in this world and that he will save us from our sins. Not either or, both and. He didn't promise to make the world perfect. That will come later. Jesus didn't come to save us from everything bad that might conceivably happen. He came instead to fill us with his presence. And he came to remake us into the people that he means for us to be. This is better than any human kingdom that we can build for ourselves. The text goes on in Matthew 1.22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Immanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Emmanuel is not what Jesus' name was supposed to be. It's a title. It's a statement about the kind of person that Jesus is. That statement about Jesus' identity is God with us. In John chapter 1, it says that the Word, which means Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us in John 1.14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Dwell. It's an important word. It's one of those places where the Greek is actually really helpful. What it says, most literally, is Jesus pitched a tent among us. This is a strange way to say that somebody is with you if you're not camping, unless there's more going on. You may have heard that in the Old Testament, the people of Israel lived in the wilderness for a minute. And at this time, God instructed them to build something called the tabernacle. The easier translation is tent of meeting. The tent of meeting was always pitched in the middle of the Israelites' camp. It's where the priests offered sacrifices. 
and God dwelt inside the center of this tent of meeting. When the Jews camped out in the wilderness, the tent of meeting was always at the center of their camp because this signified that God was with them. So John's not using a strange word for no reason. He means to say that God was with his people in the tent of meeting, and God was with us when Jesus pitched his tent in this world, because Jesus is a human tent of meeting. His name means Savior. His title means God with us. The garden was a place where God and humans dwelt together with no separation. Since we can't go back to the garden, Jesus brought the garden to us. This is why we read in John chapter 2, starting in 19, Jesus answered them, his opponents, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jewish religious leaders replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Originally, it was the garden where God dwelt with people. Later, it was the tent of meeting. Later still, the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus says he is the true temple because a temple is, is a place where people go to meet with God. So if you want to know that God is with us, look at Jesus because Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn meaning preeminent in position, over all creation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We have a Savior who has been tempted in every way that we have. He knows what we've been through, he knows what we're going through because he is also truly human. Hebrews 4 tells us we don't have a high priest, that is Jesus, who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we have, yet he did not sin. When Adam and Eve left the garden, God posted guards so that they would keep back. When God gave the law to Moses, he said, the people had to keep back. At the tent of meeting, only the high priest could go into the presence of God. Everybody else had to keep back. In the temple, a curtain hung down so that the people would know they had to keep back. What does it mean that through Jesus, God is with us? It means that we no longer need to keep back. Instead, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you feel proud, Jesus will show you the ways in which you need him, if you will receive it. If you feel guilty, Jesus will forgive you of the things that you will not forgive yourself of if you will receive it. If you think that nothing here at church, nothing in this life, nothing in your life really matters at the end, Jesus will give you a hopeful life of meaning 
goodness, service, community, and purpose, if you will receive it. If you fear death, you can have the guarantee of eternal life with God through Jesus, if you will receive it. Don't wait to fix yourself to approach his throne of grace. Don't let other people think they need to. Jesus came to us as a baby because we can't fix ourselves first. Trying to fix yourself before you come to Jesus is like swabbing the deck on a sinking ship. If we think we need to fix ourselves first, we will never come. So come boldly. Help other people come boldly today. We must come not after, but right smack dab in the middle of our time of greatest need. If you wonder whether or not God wants to be with you this Christmas season, look at Jesus. He sits on a throne of grace. He does not say, keep back. He says, come in. He says, receive me. It's not a fairy tale. It's not too good to be true. Jesus is God with us. He deeply desires to be God with you. Worship team, you guys can start making your way up. The Apostle Paul was not one of Jesus' original followers. He started off thinking that Jesus' story was a big lie until he saw Jesus alive and it changed his life. And in the book of Acts, chapter 26, Paul finds himself on trial because he won't stop telling people about Jesus. And the people there judging him were Portius Festus, a Roman leader, and King Herod Agrippa II. As Paul explains how he went from being an opponent of Jesus to a proponent, Portius Festus interrupts him and he says, you're out of your mind with this Jesus stuff. And we read this in Acts 26, 25. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king, Herod Agrippa, is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this, Jesus' ministry, the founding of the church, has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Jesus didn't have some compound out in the desert. He had a public ministry in many different locations. He was with people all the time, common people, religious leaders, political leaders. All these people stood face to face with Jesus. He was publicly executed at the very center of Judaism during its biggest holiday. Hundreds of people saw Jesus die. The location of his tomb, public knowledge. Hundreds more claimed to witness him back to life after they saw him die. The eyewitnesses were so committed to their testimony about this story that they let themselves be hated, driven from their homes, and in some cases, tortured to death, rather than deny that Jesus is God with us. So if you're hearing my voice today, and maybe you've adopted this idea that Christmas is fun, Jesus is all right, but we shouldn't take all of this so seriously, I want to encourage you, even if it's just one notch on the dial, take Jesus more seriously. And for those of us who are taking him seriously, but maybe troubled when we don't feel prepared to address hard questions, 
or to share this good news of God with us, I want to encourage you today. Taking Jesus seriously is not an insane act of blind faith with no evidence. It's a reasonable faith. It's based on the evidence of history, on the principles of philosophy, and on the evidence of experience. He has changed our lives, has he not? Jesus invites all of us into a different life altogether. Not a good life devoid of conflict, but a good life despite the conflict. An enduring, nevertheless, kind of life in which there is no separation between us and God. He's inviting us into something better than the human kingdoms we build on our own. Jesus can do this for us because he is God with us, and his story is true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for this Christmas season. Thank you that we can trust this story is true. Help us to believe it as we seek to be a city on a hill. In Jesus' name, amen.